0: That's O-L-L-Y dot com.
1: This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you.
0: Monster House presents... Monster
2: Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way, we are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. What is it, some sort of computer game? In a sense, except it uses the most powerful processor known to man, the human mind. (laughs) You're not playing. I'm not a player, but I am playing. He sort of tells us what's happening. I will be your guide. Through my words, you will experience the land of Elfinheart, From the mighty mountains
1: that border the goblin wastelands to the sewers that run like a spiderweb through the city of Jandor. I, gentlemen, will be your eyes.
0: It's actually
1: quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man.
2: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stolzner.
2: In the summer of 2016, America was captivated by the adventures of a plucky gang of kids in the imaginary town of Hawkins, Indiana. Their story, the plot of the series, centered around a secret government facility that conducted illegal and unethical experiments resulting in horrific paranormal outcomes. The main plot of the show was built on real events like the CIA's efforts at mind control, and fictional events like the legends around something called the Montauk Project. We will likely dig into that stuff more in the future, but before any of Stranger Things' main plot begins, we're given a smaller narrative centered around a gaming table in the basement of one of the protagonist's suburban home. We're gonna go to a clip, but be advised, the kids here have potty mouths.
0: Something is coming.
1: In hungry for blood. A shadow grows on the wall behind you, swallowing you in darkness. It is almost here. What is it? What if it's the Demogorgon? Oh, Jesus, oh. we're so screwed if it's the Demogorgon. It's not the Demogorgon.
2: An army of troglodytes charge into the chamber. Troglodytes? Told you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Did you hear that? that? That sound, boom. Boom. Oh! That didn't come from the chocolate lights. Oh no. That, that came from something else. The Demogorgon!
1: Oh, we're a deep shit. Will, your action! I don't know. Fireball him! have to roll a 13 or higher. Too risky. Cast a protection spell. Don't be a pussy. Fireball him! Cast protection. The Demogorgon is tired of your silly human bickering. It stops towards you. Boom! Fireball him, Will! I'm gonna stop! Boom! Cast protection!
2: So, did you hear the names of those monsters? Troglodytes? Demogorgon? For many people, these are not just names for cave-dwelling prehistoric peoples or for a specific demon mentioned in Milton. As an interesting aside, current theory is that the name Demogorgon was actually created when someone misspelled the Greek word Demiurge, the name of the creator of the physical world within Gnostic Christianity. Rather than acknowledging a typo, subsequent readers deduced that it meant something special. <laughs> that's, that's so covfefe. Statistically, it's likely most people today encounter these words in the context of Dungeons & Dragons. D&D is the foundational framework for the modern role-playing game ecosystem. Or maybe that's geeko system But the foundational book for dispensing information about monsters in that game is the Monster Manual. Today, we're going to talk about the history of that book and of role-playing games. And we know that not all of our listeners are gamers and not all of Monster Talk's hosts are either. So today, I'll be playing the role of a gamer and Karen will be the proxy questioner for all you non-gamers out there. And we have a fantastic guide for this adventure, author John Peterson, whose book, Playing at the World, has been used as a course text for understanding the history of the modern role-playing game phenomenon. We'll be discussing monsters and gaming So you know you're in for some...
0: Monster dog.
2: Today, we're going to be talking with John Peterson, who's the author of Playing at the World, a history of simulating wars, people, and fantastic adventures from chess to role-playing games. And he was also a contributor to the recent retrospective volume looking at the game Dungeons & Dragons, Art and Arcana, a Visual History, which is an absolutely gorgeous book. I think... To be blunt, Monster Manual was a gateway uh, to the world of mythology and monsters to many of our listeners, and long before many of them had even read myths or the sort of fictional volumes that sort of informed that book, they were reading about the stats of monsters to play role-playing games. But now um, we had this opportunity to talk to someone, because I've been trying to find someone to talk about the Monster Manual, uh, relate you know the, the D&D game book, The Monster Manual, and I, I was reaching around to different people, and... Uh, Ken Height said, "Don't talk to me. Talk to John Peterson. He's the guy to get." And so we reached out to you, and I'm so glad that you decided to join us. So welcome to Monster Talk.
3: Oh well, thanks so much for having me, uh, Blake and Karen. Yeah, and uh, I, it's obviously very flattering welcome that Ken, Ken Height would direct you guys to me. That's awesome.
2: <laughs> we presume that you came to gaming as a gamer, um, but I know that sounds strange. But like somehow you've moved beyond that. And have become sort of uh, an expert on gaming itself and chronicling the sort of historical way that it came to be what it is now. How how did that path happen?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, the story I typically tell about this, um, which I I think is mostly true, um, is that Back in, you know, in 2004, something really traumatic happened to a lot of gamers. Um, a game was released called World of Warcraft. And it kind of took over our lives and made us unable to do anything for a considerable amount of time afterwards. And some friends of mine staged an intervention, actually. Uh, we, we were going to England to go to a, an indie rock festival there, but we were staying over in London for a couple of days. And while we were there, I was in the British Museum, and I happened to see in a display case this first century A.D. Roman 20 sided die. And, you know, I kind of had this moment then where I wondered just how far back everything went, how far back the things I was like living in in World of Warcraft went. And kind of the, the thing I immediately seized upon, actually, was the question, okay, there must have been someone in history who was like the first person to roll a die against some kind of a, a statistical model, um, a chart that would decide fictional events based on the outcome of the die roll. And who was it? And I was like, somebody must have written the book about this. Somebody must have figured this out long ago. And so I went looking for it. It. And that was the path that led me to where I am today, more or less, is that, you know, I got super obsessed with um, answering that in a set of related questions. And um, the time that I had been squandering on World of Warcraft kind of quickly transitioned into time I was now squandering on vast amounts of historical research. And within a couple of years, I knew I was going to do playing at the world. And uh, yeah, once that came out, I just kind of got caught up in this.
0: So, uh, I think we've established already that I'm not a gamer. So uh, all of this lingo is just gobbledygook to me. And yet uh, we've been talking already about some games that I'm obviously familiar with, things like chess. You know, and growing up, i played all kinds of games and, and things like Monopoly and Trivial Pursuit. But I guess my question is, what is gaming? How do we distinguish the gaming that you guys are talking about um as opposed to chess or monopoly or, or other games
3: yeah it's it's a valid question and i mean the the distinction <laughs> is not obviously a um a very fast one in the sense right. of you know there are there's a set, I guess, of um, games, a cluster that came out in the 1950s that I identify as kind of starting popular gaming as we understand it in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, these came out at the same time as board games like um, Stratego and uh, Risk had started to reach American audiences. But then then there was this kind of separate class of board games. And these were made by companies like the Avalon Hill Company, being an example, uh, mm-hmm. who made simulations of like the Battle of Gettysburg, for example. Now, these drew on a whole rich tradition of conflict simulation that goes back to, you know, the early nineteenth, even the late eighteenth century. But these board games are the first things that kind of made it part of an American, especially youth culture movement. And those people in the 60s, as they experimented more with games, as the scope of simulation of these games started to grow, I really look at them as the first kind of gamers, as we now understand gamers. Um, You know, people that were part of an organized fandom, a hobby that had um, magazines, fanzines, as they called them then, conventions, clubs, and kind of the, the structures that got creative people together to think about strategies for these games or to think about, um, you know, designing new ones themselves. And this community more or less made the jump early to uh, computers when computer and video games started. And there are all kinds of fascinating lines of influence we can draw between the complex simulation systems that were built for these tabletop games, especially in the 70s, and then the the things we consider the first kind of computer games. And D&D was a huge part of that in the sense it was a, a lot of the D&D community that gave these games something that kind of transcended, I guess, the, the arcade game approach of, you know, pinball, you have coin-operated, right. your game should last less than 90 seconds, so the next kid has to put a quarter in, you know, and kind of made them more story-driven, more of the games that are today, the kind of AAA, you know, games that are produced that, you know, like the famously Fallout 4 can make $750 million the first week weekend they're, they're released, right, uh, figures wow. that make, okay. like, Hollywood jealous, and so, yeah, I see that as being a kind of separate thing largely from the traditional chess or even board games like Stratego and, and Risk. Um, this this was a hobby that was built, again, on more of a foundation of of simulation. And that, that of course, made it uh, easy for it to make the jump to computers.
2: There's such a fascinating aspect to gaming as a form of abstract modeling of a scenario, whatever that scenario is, whether it's a a war game or a, a strategy, sort of tactical, economic game, whatever it is, that you're basically setting up rules and trying to play out a scenario, which is an abstract model. And of course, basically what computers do is allow you to do very meticulously controlled abstract modeling as well. So... I think as a big fan of computer history, I I've always been fascinated by the story of the history of the game space war, um, which was based on the fictional works of E. E. Doc Smith. Also, no, relation. Uh, no, no, no no relation. And, yeah. <laughs> and he's a doctor, but he was like a doctor of food science. It's so interesting. He's, he's treated with such veneration by early science fiction, uh, writers and readers. But, uh, his, his expertise was in, I think making donuts, um, so, but it, no, they're fun books.
0: I can get with that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I was just thinking about the, um, uh, you your book also covers the Plato system, P-L-A-T-O. um, And I've, uh, there are actually at least one uh, active Plato system still in existence that you can get logins and mess around with. And I've taken the time a few years ago to get a login and go play some of those old Plato games. And among them was a game called D&D. Uh, which models the Dungeons & Dragons game. And it was identical to a game that was sold called Guard, which you could buy at stores. And there's some really interesting history there. I might do some sort of little special bonus feature about that because there's quite a story around that. But um, you uh, we're really here to talk about the Monster Manual to some extent. And you wrote in your book that I don't know why I went into that long ramble there, but I just love this stuff.
3: <laughs> I, I'm happy to talk about it's space great. war. I love space war and Plato and all that stuff. So, yeah, I'm fascinated yeah, yeah. by – I mean, MIT had a very vibrant conflict simulation uh, club that was in parallel to space war in the 1960s and all these lines of interconnection between them. There's tabletop versions of space war. Did you know that?
2: In the, the Dungeons & Dragons section, you talked about the work of T.H. White – uh, in doing a translation of a 12th century – and I'm going to say the word. Is it pronounced bestiary or bestiary? I've always been a little unclear on that. Like it's I primer mean, and we, primer. I, 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 yeah.
3: We usually say bestiary these days. We usually say bestiary. Okay. So um, he, he's he's looking at
2: a 12th century bestiary, um, T.H. White is, and he makes a translation of it, and that somehow becomes part of the sort of the monster manual – in some ways, the Sigiri Gygax, thing? how did this happen? What's the relationship between those books?
3: Yeah, I mean, this, this is kind of a, a long story in some respects, but I mean, the Monster Manual, remember, came out about three years after D&D was first published, right? There was kind of this original box set of d d that came out in 1974, and the Monster Manual kind of, began to show where the game was evolving towards. It was the first book in what we call the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons series. And it, yeah, it, was this, it's a, it is its it is own bestiary, right? It's a compendium of 350 monsters that have been researched and so on. But when you wind the clock back just, you know, three more years to 1974, I mean you'll find that, you know, Gary Gygax and his compatriots, uh, people like Dave Arneson, who are working on D&D, you know, they knew monsters largely from fantasy fiction. Fiction, right? They knew monsters from having read Tolkien or Robert E. Howard or Paul Anderson. And, you know, they, T.H. White obviously had written a, a book called The Once in Future King that was uh, pretty well known in fantasy circles at the time. And so his work became one of several sources that they ended up raiding to find more monsters to populate their dungeons and wildernesses because there was a voracious appetite for new things to slay and overcome. And so, you know, when you look at what we started with in D. it's a pretty small set compared to what's in the monster manual but a lot of those things are things that they found then in th white and there's a book that's called a fantastic bestiary that's by uh, laner that is an, another thing has an index in the back that we can tell they rated to kind of cobble together some of the first monsters that they put forward and so it, it was i think a you know a real mashup. It was a mashup of, okay, I read this pulpy, you know, fantasy novel and I, this is how Paul Anderson think trolls work. And so we're going to have trolls be like this. But then I was watching some Harryhausen animated Sinbad or Jason and the Argonauts and he had skeletons and this iron golem and like all these amazing things in it. And they, they just drew from absolutely everything they could find. So, uh,
0: I think, yeah, I think Blake is, is, getting very excited about this topic <laughs> and uh, he's concerned that maybe we've we've made too much of a big jump and that we should pull back and, and go back to the beginnings a, a little bit more. Um, so maybe if we could talk about how uh, we've gone from games like chess to wargaming war and to Dungeons and Dragons and how that progression's...
2: Yeah, I, I I got a little over. <laughs> <laughs>
3: okay.
2: I like this stuff a lot,
3: but we probably I mean, should contextualize it. Yeah. You can edit this any way it, yeah. you want and put it together, right? So. Yeah, you true, know, true. It you, this is true. You so. Um, yeah. So we can, we can talk a bit about chess and war games and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. When when I started trying to figure out the origins of simulation, the origins of the idea that people you know would use kind of probability and implements of chance to decide fictional events in a way that was based on some some kind of like scientific model, you know, it it took me back to Prussian Kriegsspiel, and so the the Kriegsspiel that was developed in Germany, Kriegsspiel is a word that just means war game. Um, the the Kriegsspiel tradition in Germany sprang from chess. Um, when you know, there, there's a whole era in, I guess the early, early modern Renaissance um, period where people viewed chess as a tool for learning statecraft, a tool for strategy, a tool for just indoctrinating people into you know proper ways of bolstering defenses and making attacks. You know it just is, is an abstract training tool. But a lot of people found that unsatisfactory. There were military scientists who wanted to try to adapt chess into something that would more accurately reflect what a contemporary battlefield was like. Because let let's face it, you know the the veering bishops and the rooks that shuffle along, and you know the the queen the queen who can dominate the field and the king who can kind of only cower in his castle, um, you know, aren't necessarily reflective of the infantry, artillery, and cavalry that they had, say. In the, the 17th century, even, and so people started looking at: Can we adapt the chessboard? Can we make the chessboard bigger for one thing? Um, so it's not just this eight by eight grid, but you know maybe it should be a hundred by hundred grid. And maybe we Mm -hmm. should be able to people it with pieces that move the way that infantry moves today or that can, you know, or cavalry that can move faster than infantry or artillery that can shoot at things from a distance and to develop systems for, you know, maneuvering in this and uh, resolving events that would actually train people to be able to do, um, to, to prosecute real wars at the time.
0: Cool. That's interesting. We're using the term "interesting" a lot tonight.
3: Yeah, <laughs> well,
0: <laughs> but I mean it. <laughs> well, I still I remember like,
2: as a child, uh, uh, fairly young, going to uh, some of our bigger malls, and one of them had a sort a store called Sort of the Phoenix, which sold uh, role playing games because this was uh, late seventies. But they also were still primarily selling. Uh, tabletop wargaming stuff, and there were all kinds of, you know, metal miniatures. I assume they were lead back then. I'm not really sure, but, um, and I knew that people were playing some kind of game, but I really wasn't clear on how you played a game, and how much of it was just about painting minis. And um, I'm still sometimes when I look at people playing uh, Warhammer, I'm not still quite sure. <laughs> <laughs> how much of it is about painting miniatures and how much of it's about trying to win battles. But uh, it does seem to be uh, a broad spectrum uh, of, of styles and approaches that kind of combines a lot. I guess there's really a, a lot of different sort of um, hobbies that can be met, like s- sort of things you can do with these hobbies. I mean, some people really like role-playing games um, to take on roles and do acting and, and improv scenes and some people like to do really intense tactical combat and some people like to paint managers. It's a it's 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 a broad spectrum of, of uh, pastimes, I guess, all bundled into one big title gaming hobby, right?
3: Oh, fair enough, yeah. and I mean, if, if you go back to the origin of what we, we consider hobby wargaming, you know, H.G. Wells is the first name that you come to because Wells proposed a way of using toy soldiers of the kind that, you know, you would have in a typical middle-class British nursery of his day and kind of being able to marshal those and something that approximates those more complex, like Prussian kinds of games, but is, you know, easy to resolve and, you know, very playable, as we say, not so much focused on the realism Um, the simulation of events as the playability of just being able to kind of resolve things and, and have a fun tactical battle. And you know, once miniatures got into the equation, there were a number of uh, firms that became very interested in developing rules for miniature war games. Um, in the sense that, you know, if you look at a company like Avalon Hill that sold basically board games in the 1950s, you know, everything you needed to play was in the box. You bought the box, you had everything you needed to do in order to play the game. Um, but you know. Somebody like Jack Scrooby, who in the 1950s was manufacturing military miniatures in California, you know he wanted to develop rules in order to encourage people to buy his miniatures right because if you need to buy two hundred miniatures in order to field this battle, you know then Jack Scrooby has a, a nice payday, and so for him, rules were uh-huh. something that kind of joined together you know the uh-huh. process of buying these figures, painting them, and then playing with them so so at
2: some point we I guess the the general narrative is. You've got very serious tactical models um, and serious board games uh, based on trying to recreate military battles and that sort of thing. And then you've got the Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson people who want to add fantasy, you know, throw a wizard out there with the other people. Is that that an oversimplification? Is that how we got to Dungeons & Dragons out of the wargaming world?
3: It's certainly a big part of it. Um, You know, in 1971, Gary Gygax released what was the first kind of commercial set of rules for fantasy gaming. It was a game called Chainmail that he wrote with a guy named Jeff Perrin. And Perrin had developed a medieval combat system. A lot of the uh, war games that were popular in the 60s were really focused on um, much later periods of history. They were focused on refighting things from the Civil War, from World War One, World War II. Going back to medieval rules was rarer. There were a few people who were doing it, but not many. And, you know, what they ended up doing was tacking on this fantasy supplement to this book, Chainmail. It was about a third of the book, so It wasn't, you know, just a a couple pages they stapled onto the end. But this was the first place they detailed, here's rules for an orc or a wizard or a dragon or, you know, things like that. And they drew, again, largely on Tolkien, on Robert E. Howard's Conan books, um, a bit on Michael Moorcock and things like that. Um, And that... Created the initial impetus for fantasy gaming as kind of an industry in America in
0: 1971. Okay, so for me, who's outside of the community and not really familiar with any of the the monsters of Dungeons and Dragons, uh, could you tell us about some of the most iconic monsters? And I'm wondering if I might know of some just through history or um, just through hearing about these these characters.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, orcs are big in D&D. Um, orcs and kobolds and dragons and things like that. Um, you know, the ones that became most iconic, frankly, are probably ones that were invented for the game. A uh, good example of this would be like the Mind Flayer, um, who's kind of a, a Cthulhu-like guy um, who's got like tentacles for a mouth and he's, uh, he has psionic abilities so he can mind blast you, things like that. Or um, another would be the Beholder, which is this kind of floating sphere with eyes on stalks. It has these eight eye stalks on its head. And then this one huge central eye um, in the middle of the spherical body. And each of its little eye stalks can shoot rays that have different effects in the game. Uh, they're all bad. You don't want to get hit by any of them. Um, it sounds but, a bit you like know,
0: the flying spaghetti monster.
3: <laughs> it's a bit. There's a bit um, uh, you know some of us some of us are true believers there but uh, um, you know if you look at for example the current monster manual the one that's been released for fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons the beholder is on the cover it is it has become one of the most iconic D&D monsters okay
2: at some point they took this concept of a, best, a bestiary and created the monster manual and it sounds like they're mining just about anything in order to get material right so can you talk about like the first versions of the book and how it's changed over time
3: Um, Sure. So, I mean, the first version was really trying to gather a bunch of stuff that had unfortunately been scattered across a pretty wide spread of periodicals, rule books, supplements, and things like it. So, you know, the reason they had to do a compendium, a real kind of taxonomic compendium for these monsters, was because they'd been... You know, they had this magazine. They called it the Dragon, for example, and there would be monsters in each issue of the Dragon. But if you're trying to remember <laughs> when you're playing the game where a given monster was, was that in the Greyhawk supplement? Was that in Elders Wizardry? Was that in the original game? Was that in Dragon number three? You know, you you had a, a significant problem. And so the AD&D system, of which the Monster Man was the first installment, really just tried to gather all that together. Now they did add some things in for it. Frankly, most of the things they added, you know, was like dinosaurs or you know, do you need rules for like a badger? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of just kind of animals, frankly, that got added at that stage of it. Um, and you know, the, they they were just trying to be complete to provide a complete simulation of the kinds of monsters that you would encounter. Inevitably, as soon as it came out, though, people were coming up with more, you know, more issues of the Dragon were published. And so there was this magazine in the UK called White Dwarf that was affiliated at the time with uh, the people who published D&D. And they had their own um, column that was dedicated to introducing new monsters in every issue. And those ended up getting bound into a volume called The Fiend Folio which came out in 1981. And then enough monsters have been published, you know, two years later that they had a Monster Manual 2. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, the Monster Manual 2 had an index for where you could find monsters across the original Monster Manual and the Fiend Folio and the Monster Manual 2. And it just gets worse from here. Like every edition of D&D that was published subsequently, there would be an original Monster Manual, but then there would be, you know, all these editions you could get to it. They actually, in second edition, it's interesting, they, they, they basically just gave you a box binder that you could clip more pages into and then sold just more pages, you know, three whole binder ready <laughs> that you could stick into your binder and, you know, you could fill multiple binders with all the monsters that they ended up defining.
0: Wow. Wow. I mean, I've heard of uh, Red Dwarf, not White Dwarf, though. Yes. I'm Tell not sure if you yes. guys are familiar with that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I feel out of my depth here <laughs> talking about these topics. <laughs> I think a question that's come to mind is I'm just trying to think because, again, I haven't been a part of the community uh, in any way. But when I was growing up in Australia, when I was a kid in the 1980s, I'd hear a lot about Dungeons and Dragons and uh, adults talking about it and the news media talking about it. And it just seemed like there was a lot of negativity surrounding it at that point and uh, that it was just seen as as something – um, that people became obsessive about and was a, a very bad thing in some way and had lots of negative connotations and uh, links to, I guess, Satanism and uh, all kinds of uh, things related to that. So I'm just wondering what is the the link to that? Again, these are just things that I'd kind of hear in the background without being involved in any way. Uh, but I think that it's something that Blake wanted to talk about was the relation to the Satanic Panic in the, the 1980s.
2: Oh, for sure, um, yeah.
0: But uh, yeah, I grew my, up in that
2: time, yeah. so hmm.
0: Why was it looked down upon by so many parents and, and what, what was the problem with D&D?
1: This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
3: Well, I mean, D&D probably would have remained a pretty obscure hobby. It wouldn't have crossed into the mainstream if it weren't for this one bizarre historical accident. When in 1979, there was a kid who was a university student in um, East Lansing, Michigan, who disappeared from his dorm room. And the media, the the kind of uh, private detective who'd been hired to try to find him, became fixated on the fact that he played D&D. And they believed that D&D was responsible for his disappearance, that he had become convinced that this was real. And that he was, in fact, wandering the steam tunnels beneath the university trying to slay monsters and find treasure and things like that. And that if he he were and had been gone for so long, he'd probably been killed by it. And this Mm -hmm. became front page news for for about a week on newspapers lead stories on nightly news in America it was this huge huge media circus now of course it turned out he had run away and was in Louisiana and eventually when he heard about all this he called his parents and you know kind of kind of came home but that created this Dialogue, this narrative about D &D. and D and that narrative would be borrowed by a lot of uh, religious fundamentalists over the the coming years that we're kind of dovetailing this all with the satanic panic, as you described. Um, Mm -hmm. And there were, there were a whole series of these guys who, um, uh, put published these tracts about it, um, who petitioned school boards to ban it. And, you know, they they certainly had the microphone of, of the media and were able to, um, you know, promulgate those ideas far enough that they, I'm sure, reached Australia and were uh, yeah. part of the dialogue there as well.
0: It's just interesting to hear about how that kind of diffusion across to other countries. And uh, But, yeah, I wasn't familiar with that original story
2: oh yeah it's it's a classic because the 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 way it was described at the time sounded so weird uh you know why would you know that's not the gaming world that I had seen? nobody was dressing up yet it in many ways it they're really describing early larping so the live action role playing but i I, I ran into. A jack chick track for dark dungeons before i ever saw a player's handbook or any of the other gaming materials oh, really yeah so <laughs> that was you know the that, growing up in a small town in georgia that was they had uh, uh just a, a delightful selection of jack chick tracks in my doctor's office when i would have to go to the pediatrician so
3: <laughs> oh, I, I ironically collected those when i was a kid i thought they were great um i, I i'm sure i still have them all somewhere in a, a folder
2: I mean, this is sad because, I mean, I think it was harmful to the, the hobby, but I, I absolutely loved the story there because the implication, which is actually one that weirdly still goes on, which is the implication is that if you're playing Dungeons & Dragons uh, or whatever the uh, Dark Dungeons game is, inject Chick's twisted imagination, um, you're really learning how to do real magic and you're opening yourself up to a gateway where you're going to be go down the path of... You know, demon subjugation and, you know, dark satanic cults and that sort of thing, which is, um, I have to say, if you're a a person who's a seeker looking for power and you think you're going to get that out of a Dungeons and Dragons book, it's kind of disappointing to see it's roll dice, creature takes two <laughs> dice, six damage, you know, it's
3: like... What? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I study this quite a bit. I mean, this is one of the things since it's so integral to the history of D and D that I've kind of endlessly poured through. And you know, the, the fascinating thing about it is that when the D and D, when the designers of the game decided to integrate in, especially real world mythology to it, um, after the Monster Manual, well, the next, well, the next book that was kind of a compendium like it they released was something called Deities and Demigods. Mm-hmm. And this came out. You know, in 1980, right around the time the Satanic, Satanic Panic was kicking off, and it contained detailed um, descriptions of mythological, quote-unquote, but real-world pantheons of gods. Now, it was mixed in. You know, there, there's like Lovecraft's Cthulhu stuff. There's Elric's Melnibonean and stuff, but then there's, you know, Norse mythology, there, and, which does detail pagan things, Right, and if you're a fundamentalist Christian and you're seeing your child leaping through this thing that's discussing, you know, what to you is paganism, um, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think it's entirely, you know, surprising that you would say right. maybe there, you know, is there something to this, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. I think we had on um, uh, Joe Laycock, who's a religious studies professor, and he wrote a book I know called his book. Yeah. Yeah, he wrote Dangerous Case, and we talked a little bit about. um I guess there was a rumor at the time that there were stats in the book for Jesus, and that really upset a lot of people, which um, I think it's it's just, I don't know. Moral panics are, you know, they they always are completely disturbing and compelling when you're in the middle of them, and they are ridiculous in retrospect, you know. And, well, uh, I mean,
3: uh, yeah, Gary, Gary, and Dave, the the chief designers of D anD D, they were both Christians. They yes, both seriously yes. self-identified as Christians, mm-hmm. and you know, mm-hmm. they certainly thought this was absolutely ridiculous. That there was nothing to any of this notion that you're learning real magic or something. But at the same time, you know, the month that James Dallas Egbert disappeared, that kid in East Lansing, Michigan, you know, the the that issue of the Dragon was giving stats for Satan. Right. <laughs> like, wow. You know, so it's always it, it, I, I mean, I I, I, I don't want to um, make the case of the fundamentalists on this, but at least I can understand, <laughs> you know, what, so, what some of their concerns were.
0: Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but what are stats?
3: This is a good question. This is a good question. And this this gets into what makes
0: <laughs> I've stumbled what, across it.
3: <laughs> No, so I mean, this gets into what makes the way that D and D looks at monsters so unique and so influential in re- some respects. Because monsters, you know, in literature can be pretty vague. You know, when Tolkien talks about the Balrog, for example, famously people argue about whether or not he meant it had wings, and no, nobody can decide if it's supposed to have wings or not because he he describes it as a shadow, and you know, there's really not a lot of concrete detail. But to put a monster into a simulation, it has to be specific enough to simulate. Right. You have to know enough about it that the game system can interact with the monster. And so what stats are, stats are the, the quantification of attributes of a monster that let you confront it or charm it or, you know, interact with it in the system in some way. So this, these will be things like its hit points. Hit points are something that's been, came from D&D, is tremendously influential in computer gaming. You know, it's kind of the, the bucket of endurance you have to withstand damage. And it's, okay. it's always quantified in D&D. So when you start out, you know, you might have just five or six hit points and a sword might be able to kill you with a single blow. But if you're fighting a dragon, you know, a dragon could have hundreds of hit points. And so if you were fighting it with a sword, you might need to hit it hundreds of times to be able to defeat it. And that mm-hmm. aspect of how D&D approaches monsters made people have to, you know, um, reify them in a way. That really you don't have to if you're just creating a myth or even writing fiction about it. You have to make it real enough to simulate.
0: And so who creates these stats and are they something that evolve over time?
3: They do. So, I mean, if you look across the multiple editions of d even what the stats are changes a bit over time. But um, it's a designer's game, a uh, designer's job. The game designer okay. um, stipulates what stats are. But that much said, everybody who plays the game is a little bit of a game designer themselves. Everybody invents their own monsters. But you kind of use the the prototypes you see in something like the monster manual where you can see what it's like to be something very powerful like a dragon or something very weak like a kobold right and you can you can kind of you know, OK, I think my monster should be a little bigger than a kobold, but nowhere near as big as a dragon. And so I'm going to give it this number of hit points. I'm going to give it this armor class. When it hits you, it's going to do this much damage. And there are die rolls that you incorporate into the system to kind of stipulate how how many hit points of damage a given hit against a, a player character would do. Structural rule set so that everybody's playing
2: on the same uh, basis. Everyone has the same platform from which to approach the problem solving, and in, in as you play with different groups, um, everyone wants to have a different character. So there's these different character classes who have certain advantages and disadvantages. Uh, and then Dungeons and Dragons has a magic system, so the people who use magic typically start out weaker in physical combat but stronger in magical ability. And th- there's just like it's just a fascinating sort of um well i can say, I like could a, see
0: why this would appeal to our listeners with the combination of history and mythology and monsters and, and problem everything. solving
2: Absolutely. and yeah yeah it's yeah. it's got and there's usually pizza i think that and um that's always nice and so <laughs> for
3: sure it's funny the the project, one of the projects that I'm, I'm working on now, it's actually about to be released next month, is a cookbook for Dungeons and Dragons. True story. You um, the pizza same team. and Chinese
2: food. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, you know, if you want to eat the tavern style meals that D&D adventurers uh, nice. eat, then you can find recipes for it in our cookbook. Oh, it's fun. <laughs>
2: ye old lords and ladies have a turkey leg what
0: <laughs> well there's a really good uh show i'm not sure if you, you guys are familiar with it on youtube uh it's called tasting history and i can't remember the guy's name max miller or something and he uh goes and looks at historical cookbooks and makes recipes from these cookbooks and and then goes into the history behind uh these foods and, and the people who ate them so it's pretty interesting. Oh, that is interesting.
2: Yeah. No, I I think you'll find, like, within different gaming groups, you have some people who want to just, you know, power grab um, and, you know, get the most treasure, which is not a real thing. Obviously, it's imaginary treasure, but you things that you win through combat or cleverness you can use to make your character more powerful, which changes your stats, which, you know, makes it possible to get more treasure and so on. But some people want to achieve like political goals within this imaginary system. And some people just want to have exciting fun and drama. Some people just want to do money Python quotes and distract from the
3: progress. I don't. It,
0: it's... I can do that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's the great thing about a, a system like D and D. I mean, it really to play it is always to reinvent it. Um, you know, it, it's a set of guidelines, right. That you, that the people sitting around the table can use to have the kind of experience they want to have. And there is always some push and pull. There, are, There's usually some tension between what some people at the table might want to do and what other people want to do. But the aggregate of that creates this extremely artisanal and personal experience as you kind of collaboratively make these adventure stories work.
0: So is this the kind of thing that you get together with a group of friends and do? Or is it you, you join groups and communities uh, or it can be online. And so you're meeting people from all around the world. How does it, how does it work?
3: I mean, obviously, these days, the online dimension is a bit more prevalent than it used to be. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it, it really is mostly you get together with your friends, I'd say. There's a certain amount of like convention play, even tournament play uh, early on, especially when the game was still closer to its wargaming roots. There were these highly competitive tournaments. You'd be able to play at conventions, and they would you know, declare a winner who was most successful at looting this particular dungeon adventure that had been designed for it. But yeah, I mean, it, it is an extremely diverse um, set of people that get involved with it, and so these days, Zoom games or Webex games are, are very common. <laughs> okay. There, there are even sets of online tools like Roll 20 that are designed to kind of provide. Um, The framework you need, the die-rolling mechanics, the ability to show maps, to position where monsters and characters are in a given room in an underground labyrinth, right? Things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's that's become Um, a very vibrant part of the community, especially since we all entered this unending quarantine.
0: And is there a culture of people who don't really like to play but like to watch and be a part of the audience
3: well, apparently Definitely. so yeah this become um, huge i mean <laughs> if you, if you want to see the epigee of that community take a look at um, something called critical role critical role it's um a, a number of professional voice actors largely people who are well known for doing voices for um absolutely revered computer game series like you know the persona series a japanese series it's very popular you know got together and ran a campaign and just filmed themselves running this campaign, they become superstars. Um, they, you know, they have a Kickstarter for an animated series based on it. That was the most successful media Kickstarter of all time.
1: Wow. Um,
2: the game is run by a game master who is sort of the rules arbitrator for the whole session. And it's also sort of the storyteller yet. It's at the same time, it's a collaborative uh, storytelling environment. So Each character is telling their own story and Mm -hmm. also helping push forward the narrative in a perfect world. Sometimes there's disruptive people, but yeah. And and so (laughs) you might get – you might go to the store and buy an adventure module. And the idea there is there's a, a, a narrative sort of skeleton there with like information on the monsters you're going to encounter, the treasure, and the plot points. And then the GM or dungeon master will walk the people through that narrative and collaboratively it will produce an outcome of some sort or another. And every time you play that scenario uh, with different people or even with the same people if they want to replay it, it'll be a different game because – their characters will be different characters or they'll say different things. And so you, even though you're seeing the same kind of story, it, it all, they all seem to kind of come out differently. It's, it's, it's a, from a, just a pure entertainment point of view, it's a, an endless wealth of variety available.
3: Yeah, it's, wow, it's, it's super hard to explain, but it's really easy to do, yeah. you know? So like <laughs> Karen, Karen, let's just say that you have a, a character um, who's mm-hmm. a wizard and you can come up with a name for your character like you know, pie can, whack it. there you go. Pie, pie a whack it.
2: That's a real witch name. Yep. Well, sorry. Yeah, it's a real name of Matthew witches,
3: Hopkins right? Good. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, very nice. But you know, just imagine your character. You know, at the start of you know, a stair set of stairs leading down into a dungeon, and the dungeon mm-hmm. master will describe to you. Well, you know, it looks like it goes down about twenty feet, and it ends in uh, a wooden door. The wooden door, mm-hmm. you know, has a knocker on it. And we'll just ask you, what do you do? And as a player, you say, well, okay, I I walk down the staircase and, you know, I knock on the knocker or, you know, try to pry the door open. Or, you know, if you're a wizard, you could maybe cast a spell like the knock spell that will just open the door magically. Mm -hmm. And you just kind of negotiate these things through this way. Um, Storytelling, really. Yes, it's storytelling. So, you you know, you're you're constantly being prompted. OK, here's the environment. What do you do? That's what the, the dungeon master, the referee does. And the players then just each decide for themselves, well, I'm ignoring this staircase. I'm going to try to go around to the other side of the building. Is there some kind of a window or other way I can get in or and you might have to roll um, a check? In order to determine that, you'd roll a 20-sided die for like a perception check of some kind. And, you know, if you, maybe you'll spot there is a window. It's, it's 50 feet up, though. And maybe you have a rope. Maybe you have a grappling hook, um, you know, depending on what equipment you bring to it. And so it's extremely open-ended, um, and it has just this, this immense creativity to it, but it's also incredibly immersive to play it. Um, it's really easy to just kind of get into the spirit of it and imagine yourself in the situation of this person. And all you really need to know of the rules to play for the most part is kind of what you would propose a person in that situation would do. As long as you can describe it, then the, the dungeon master will tell you what the result is.
0: And it Sounds w- like you've done this before, John. <laughs> Once or twice, yeah.
2: <laughs> well, and it would be possible. I mean, you could have games with no magic. You can have games that are set in modern times. And you can have games, and I don't know why anybody would, but you could have games with no monsters at all. But
3: <laughs> That doesn't make well, I mean, sense, even th- this me. This quickly branched out into science fiction. You know, there was a, a number of titles, some that came right on the heels of Star Wars, for example. Um, that imagined psionic powers like the Force. There were games that took this to the Old West. Old West setting was very popular. Um, to post-apocalyptic mutant kind of settings mm-hmm. where you know you may have atomic mutations and superpowers from that. Um, tons of superhero games, historical games, pretty pretty much any genre that you can imagine being a source of adventure. People have adapted for role-playing game by this point. It sounds
2: pretty cool. It, it is. It is. It is it, it, it? Well, you know, your mileage may vary. One of the things is a, a good portion of how much fun you have is related to the sort of personalities and qualities of the friends that you play with. So, I would not give yeah. up on the game if you have a bad experience your first time. You might want to just swap out game groups. You know, I mean, you might have to find the right group of people to play with. But to, that to suits sure your taste, and that's that's not to say anyone's doing it wrong necessarily. It's just that you got to find people who are willing to play the way you want to play and that you can get along with. And and I think on the online world, even though I like to sit down with people and have pizza and throw real dice, I, it seems like the online world is a really great way to meet people in a variety of places. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure, uh, based on reading the Facebook group and other things that we have tons of gamers in the monster truck listener audience that probably if they don't know each other would really enjoy playing with each other in, in this sort of, uh, these sort of virtual worlds. Definitely. So have there been any, um, uh push this is just a really meta question but if everybody pushes to establish sort of like realistic biological ecosystems in the sort of dungeon dragon worlds when i was growing up you know you'd see these random encounter type you know classic dungeon crawls where one room to the next the monsters didn't seem to know what was going on (laughs) they just you might have like they seem like entirely generated by random encounters um but I've always, like, I just always imagined, you know, being a biologist in the, this sort of world trying to figure out what the ecosystem is exactly. And I know it's kind of complicated by magic, but are, are there, like, more naturalistic magic world building efforts out there?
3: Definitely. So there was a classic series, actually, that ran in Dragon Magazine, which is the magazine TSR, the people that published D&D, uh, put out every month. It was on the ecology of various monsters that would answer precisely these questions, try to explain how an ecosystem of these monsters would actually – thrive in a dungeon environment and, you know, what, what, where, where they lived, what they ate, um, you know, how they reproduced. Um, it's been practically Aristotle's generation of animals. Um, it, it, an, an immense amount of attention has been lavished on this over the years. In my youth,
2: I thought it was weird that at the same time we were having the satanic panic and people were burning role-playing books, we also had the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon
1: I am Dungeon Master, your guide in the realm of Dungeons and Dragons.
2: How did we have a world where we're simultaneously getting our first sort of on-screen D&D role-playing product, and at the same time, people are completely freaking out about role-playing games?
3: It is fascinating that um, the D&D cartoon came out at the time that it did. I mean, this was a time when Gary Gygax personally was... In Hollywood was trying to get a and D movie made. Um, he had a script for it. He was pushing hard to get major studios interested in it. And around that time they developed a partnership with Marvel, Marvel Comics actually. And it was through their work with Marvel, and this this was uh, they were doing series of comic books. They were doing um, uh, little figurines that were based on designs Marvel was doing. You know, really the the and D cartoon was born of that partnership. And yeah, I mean, there, there's some irony that you'll – there's a famous uh, 60 Minutes where Ed Bradley has on someone named uh, Patricia Pulling, who is really probably the most visible figure in the pushback against D&D. She was the founder of a group called B.A.D. Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons – um, you know who who was um, very assiduously working to try to see D and D banned everywhere that it could be, and at the same time CBS is like airing that. You know in the morning they're airing the D and uh, cartoon show, and so I mean I think this was based on the fact that the demographic for D and D in the early 1980s started to shift sharply younger. And so when they were looking at how they were going to expand the audience for the game, having something like a Saturday morning cartoon show uh, was just a natural, uh, natural place to expand. And you know, it was like half an hour commercials for your product, as many Saturday morning cartoons were. In retrospect, when you look back at you know Transformers or you know to take your pick mm-hmm. of how many of these were really kind of product placement. You know this this was a way to get younger children engaged with D and D, and you know although. So, there was definitely a, a countercurrent against that. There were people who were extremely concerned about the influence of DD over young people at the time. You know, those people weren't responsible for scheduling uh, major television networks. You know? And so, um, <laughs> with the combined might of DD, which was then already a pretty substantial business, and Marvel, it was just going to happen.
0: So, the game's called Dungeons and Dragons. So, why do monsters love
3: Dungeons so much? Good question. Um, I mean, the if you look at the Hobbit, I mean, you know, Smog kind of lived underground on a big pile of treasure there, right? And there is that. That Dwarven song about the, the Dungeons Deep and Caverns Old. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, Tolkien suffuses so much of this necessarily because Tolkien was so monumentally popular at the time that D&D came out. Um, D&D kind of rode the coattails of his particular vision of fantasy a bit. If you look at The Hobbit, The Hobbit is really, you know, a quest story. About going and getting, you know, loot and magic rings and magic swords called Sting, and defeating lots of orcs and goblins on your way to uh, finally confront the dragon at the very end. Um, episodically, I mean, I think it looks very much like uh, very much like D and D does.
2: I, I just keep thinking. Every time I hear about the Hobbit, I think about the movie that they did, and how that I could easily read the book before I could finish watching all those movies. It's crazy. So <laughs> <I was> like,
3: <laughs> a little bit padded. A little padded. I mean, um, to to give a, a slightly more technical answer to that one too. I mean, the dungeon as a place of adventure is really interesting to add to war games because you know a traditional war game you played it like on a on a either a a board or on a a sand table or some kind of terrain you'd set up to put your miniatures on to play the game and bringing it down into this dungeon space where it is paper and pencil and a big part of the game becomes exploration it becomes you know the, the dungeon master telling you well there's a corridor ahead of you and it extends for 30 feet and then it forks and you can either go right or left what do you do -hmm. And people would draw these maps of this, right, on graph paper just based on the the verbal description they were getting. So they wouldn't get lost. They could find their way out. There's one reason for it. But, you know, to kind of make sure that they're making the progress they want to. And that, that exploration component to it certainly was a huge part of its appeal and is something that every computer game that includes dungeon crawls these are the diablos the elder scrolls games like this have really followed that model ever since because it just provides a compelling experience
0: that just reminds me of the the book series choose your own adventure oh yeah. Um, yeah i used to read some of those i mean it was more something my brother was into he's a little older than me but uh i remember it seems like a very similar format to that anyway
3: Yeah, and actually some of the – it was probably only two years after D&D came out – that the first people started combining game books, um, you know, these kind of multi-path adventure books, with role-playing games. Um, famously, a company called uh, Flying Buffalo, who produced one of the earliest competitors to D&D, pre- pretty derivative one in some respects, called Tunnels and Trolls. Uh, the Tunnels and Trolls people had a, a game book that was called Buffalo Castle. It came out in 76, so wow. really around the time that the first choose-your-own-adventure books, Yeah, I mean, they, they hadn't even developed a brand yet, but um, Edward Packard and those guys Had started writing the initial books around then. There there was an earlier UK UK book series called uh, Tracker Books that were game books like that before we had Choose Your Own Adventure in America. But, like, you know, Buffalo Castle incorporated into that kind of decision model of choose your own adventure. Yes, going I go into this room, what do you do? You meet this monster, and if you meet the monster, here's the system for how you fight it and decide if you beat it or it beat you. And you know that that's kind of what they layered on top of the game book format. I just I
2: I found all this really interesting. I I regret having not finished your book before we talked, but everything I read in it was absolutely fascinating. I think would be of great interest to our listeners. I I just uh, this this whole field of of gaming and not just the gaming itself, but thinking about the history of it and how these various models were utilized for play and for, you know, in some ways, uh, just simulation. Right. Um, I think it's just really just endlessly fascinating. So um, I really appreciate you writing the book and for taking the time to talk to us tonight.
3: Well, it's my Absolutely, pleasure. No, yeah. Thanks for having me. No, it's, it's a big topic.
0: Someone like me, a, a primer on the topic.
3: Absolutely. And if you want to do an intro game, we can we can get in on Zoom for an hour. I can lead you through it. You'll get it immediately. Everybody gets it first try.
0: If there's alcohol involved, sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> it's
2: like I, I just want to know what Matthew will think if you if you get online and start doing role playing. This will be the best. I I, I need to see well, his reaction. I
0: just don't know if he's. I don't even know if he's into that kind of thing.
2: That's interesting. He
0: doesn't. he doesn't ever really talk about it.
2: I well, I hope I we've know. opened up a new I... avenue for your marriage, Karen, is what I <laughs> <laughs> Well I can so... say
0: so many things, but I won't. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, John, uh, we have a, a signature question, and I and I know this is an unfair question because if someone asked me, I would be challenged to answer it. But here we go. What is your favorite monster?
3: I mean, like a and d monster? Yeah, so or whatever monster you monster. Anything, want it to be. Anything, you know,
2: like anything that you uh, classify as a monster. You don't have to give stats for it, but there will be a an encounter that we'll have to play. No.
3: I mean, so so taxonomically, do you consider Totoro to be a monster? I, yes, I like absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And a
2: neighbor. He's a neighbor and a monster, I think. That's
3: right. That's
2: right. <laughs> Is that your answer? That's my answer. That's a great answer. So I
0: haven't had that one before.
2: Uh, you know, I, I ran into Totoro Not really, but I ran into the video Back in the uh, early 90s I guess there was like a, an initial American release with like entirely Different voice actors from the Disney re-release they did later And so, like I knew Totoro But then like I got reintroduced To Totoro with like an entirely Different cast, it was so peculiar So, yeah, yeah, but I, I love All the Studio Ghibli stuff uh, But that is, yeah, that's a great answer
3: I mean, maybe, maybe the Cat Bus comes in second. Oh, but. Cat Bus is awesome. Did you, okay,
2: you know, it's, a, it's, most of our listeners are adult. Have you ever noticed the Cat Bus has testicles?
3: <laughs> well, I mean, this is a Japanese thing. Right. right? I just, <laughs> my
2: daughter got a Cat Bus action figure, or, well, I don't know whatever you would call it, a very accurate rendition of the Cat Bus. <laughs> to the, and I was like, well, oh, that's cool, the Cat Bus. And I flipped it. I don't remember the Cat Bus having truck nuts, but there they are. <laughs> <laughs> so that was surprising i didn't notice it in the cartoon but i don't think they would have put them on the toy if they weren't in the cartoon so
0: probably not i'll
2: go check it later <laughs> that's just the kind of the deep science, cuts you yeah. get here on monster talk all right
0: yeah, yeah.
3: Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, so john well, this is a lot of
0: fun learning about, absolutely about yeah. all of this it's uh definitely a new world to explore
3: it's a huge world. But, but you know, it's probably the place most people encounter monsters these days is in gaming. You know, monsters are a part of people's everyday life because of gaming.
0: Such a good point, yeah. Uh, well, and...
2: It, it, if you're interested in and concerned about monsters, for many people, the, the Monster Manual or these kind of books are the first place you go to find out how to combat them if, in case they show up in real life. You know, I mean, yeah, that's silly on the one hand, but in another real sense, I think for people putting stats to a monster and knowing its weaknesses it helps them cope. So I, I think there's some therapeutic value there.
3: Well, and if you've seen uh, How to Train Your Dragon, right, there's one of the, one of the kids who's learning to be a dragon slayer who really quotes chapter and verse from their monster manual, all the stats, and everything for each of the dragons as they're, they're learning to combat them. So, yeah, the, the influence of that has it, it's cast a pretty long shadow.
2: It has indeed. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Uh, we will— yeah,
3: Thank you, John. I can see
0: my five-year-old getting into this someday.
2: <laughs> Almost, yeah, guaranteed. <laughs> never, never too
3: young. Never too young. So, <laughs> we'll put
2: links uh, to those two books in the show notes. Is there anything else you want us to link to, or anything you're working on you want to talk about? Let the listeners know yeah. about.
3: Um, well, I, I mentioned that we're doing this cookbook that's called Heroes Feast that is coming out uh, for the holidays this time. In case Ooh, nice. you want to cook, cook your D anD D. Unfortunately, you know we did have to make substitutions for any of the recipes that involved monster parts. But um, you will certainly see plenty of references to monsters in it. Um, I also have a book coming out uh, at the end of this year from MIT Press called The Elusive Shift that is about about role-playing games and how people started to understand them as a genre separate from war games.
2: Did you say The Elusive Shift? Elusive Shift. Got it.
3: You can find it. It's up on the Amazons and everything if you want to link it. I will link it. We will. Congratulations. Yeah. No, oh, thanks. Yeah. That's fantastic. What, um, have you tried the recipes in Heroes Feast? I have. though. For the most part, I've made drinks, personally. We have a drink section, uh-huh. and so we actually have a drink called the Mind Flare, for example, um, <laughs> and I can— it is like a vodka slushy. It will flay your mind if you drink it. Nice, Um, but yeah, we, we actually did, uh, photo shoots with this with professional preppers and photographers and prop people and things like that. And so since I was there for the photo shoots, I got to eat a lot of these things (laughs) kind of as we, as we were shooting them, um, which was was, a a blast. Yeah.
2: Did you have a favorite (laughs) recipe? Or, or, or is, it, is that the sort of thing you don't tell? I don't, I've never talked about a cookbook before. I mean, I know, of yeah. course I have. My wife collects thousands of them. But <laughs> I mean, I've never talked to an author of a cookbook before about the book. So is, there, is that a fair question? Like, was there a preferred, like a recipe you're really proud of?
3: Um, I We have a lot of good mushroom recipes. Like we have a drow mushroom steak. We're kind of trying to simulate what food would be like if you lived underground in caves. and like so, foraging. You know. Yeah, forging mush- mushrooms, things like that. And so that, that's a favorite of mine.
2: The, the problem with all those Underdark recipes is they make me drowsy. Oh, terrible, <laughs> terrible. <laughs> so
3: your pun budget is now you have spent it. Yeah, uh, yeah.
2: Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stolzner.
2: You've been listening to an interview with author John Peterson, author of Playing at the World and a contributor to the D&D Art in Arcana book. And he's also the author of a new gaming-themed cookbook, Heroes Feast, which we will also link to in the show notes. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk... We now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for listening and for your support.
0: has been a monster house presentation
2: well there's got to be a town nearby we will go to that town and ask around about a pegasus huzzah is that right
0: and so it was that the group began to describe themselves walking and as they described themselves walking so did obed confirm they walked i walk with